to the podcast. It is JD back with you today, and we're going to dive into part two of our conversation on Pope Francis' 2016 apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, or The Joy of Love. And just like in part one, we are going to be joined by professor of pastoral theology at the Franciscan School of Theology in Oceanside, California, Dr. Maureen Day. So in the second part, we're going to explore the pastoral dimensions of this document and look into some of the complexities of family life and kind of what it means to be pastoral and to accompany someone on their journey of faith. And we're also going to look at the infamous footnote. So if you've been reading along with us, it's uh, footnote 351, and that's a reference from paragraph 305. So without further ado, here is part two. It's almost this pastoral tour de force (laughs) Um, that it's, I mean, it's almost has two means to its Mm -hmm. end. Like, how are we going to encounter families and how do you not be a jerk (laughs) to those who are coming to you for pastoral ministry? Absolutely. Um, And I don't know if you want to speak to like, what what is the document done for maybe pastoral ministry or Mm. how we approach it. Right. So I I gave a presentation at the diocese recently. I I presented sociological data on divorce and remarriage and romance and step families and all these sorts of things. And then um, the priest that I was co-presenting with did more of the pastoral approach. And I think one of the things that um, came out of his part of the presentation is that Amoris Laetitia kind of just outlines of best practices for what priests have already always been doing, right? You know, oh, you're in a less than ideal situation. Like, how do I minister to you? (laughs) And this really gives clarity to ministers, whether they're priests or lay ministers, um, as to how to do that with integrity, how to do it in a way that honors church teaching, a way that understands the limits of a person because of our our group of people because Mm -hmm. of their circumstances that are unique to them and we can't really case study and universalize those things those things and but yeah it it gives people a way to to think through what does it mean to form a conscience and what how do we recognize a properly formed conscience when we see it versus one that needs more formation and how do we teach people how to discern you know Mm because discernment is a process and again if we're going to go back very quickly to this um the, the instant gratification that yeah. the internet can bring us. Um, we are not used to waiting on things mm-hmm. and mulling with things and kind of marinating in God's love. Like while we're coming through, going through a difficult choice, yeah. we want easy solutions, quick solutions. And um, so Amoris Laetitia really in a very profoundly, beautifully pastoral way, um, kind of distills the best practices that ministers have been using for decades mm-hmm. and puts that into a more systematized um, posture of humble listening for us to better accompany people. Yeah. Um, and so as a professor of pastoral theology, um, how, what kind of makes a good pastoral minister like what does it take (laughs) sure and i think that and that's what i didn't really discuss when i talked about the synod the whole process of the synod 
was one about listening, learning, and accompaniment, mm -hmm. right? And so this is what Amoris Laetitia also does. They, it wasn't just a bunch of people, academics, theologians, you know, thinking from the ivory tower. They invited families. They heard their testimonies. Um, so in Amoris Laetitia, Pope Francis addresses this, um, saying, and I'm quoting from 202, it, it became clear that ordained ministers often lack the training needed to deal with the complex problems currently facing families. And it was a real document that emphasized the, necess the necessity to be humble. Mm -hmm. um, because I've heard several times people either in formation for the priesthood and people who are already priests saying, well, I, of course I know a lot about family. I came from a family. Um, but I can tell you being on both sides, you know, having been a child in a family and being a spouse in a family, that those are two different experiences, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so for Pope Francis and his advisors to recognize that they needed to take a posture of humility, to really hear from the heads of families um, what it's like to live, in, to live as a family in the modern world. And that took a lot of humility to be on the other side of the desk rather than being the teacher, but to be the learner. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that I think is an important part of Amoris Laetitia. And then once we listen well and we learn well, only then can we really accompany. Because if we don't understand and even if we don't agree with the feelings that a person's having about their situation, we have to understand that those are the feelings that they're working through. And then we can accompany them in a way that's fruitful because and if I don't understand someone's feelings, someone's struggles, and I'm just, and I tell them, no, you just need to do it this way. <laughs> that's not going to actually bring them any closer to a shared notion of the good. And so, yeah, Morris Letizia, I think is great for helping us to really pause as ministers, to reflect on how we minister and how we don't, how we minister well and don't minister mm -hmm. well and, and to be self-critical um, and to be humble. So. Yeah. It's definitely kind of a attitude of kind of pumping the brakes. Mm -hmm. And when I think about it's like situations, um, my few like pastoral <laughs> situations, um, that was really like, how do I understand what's going on? How do, and maybe let, it's maybe a little bit more down the road that kind of more of like hardcore structured things start to come out mm -hmm. because first you have to see where is this person right. and, um, I don't remember where I heard this, but it's like the movement from the real to the ideal mm -hmm. and maybe being all right with the ideal might not come until after they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> right. Sure. So, um, but yeah, but then you provide a steadfast and faithful presence of mm -hmm. Christ to that person. Even, you know, even if they don't reach that, none of us reach the ideal, yeah. right? And that's yeah. part of the humility <laughs> part of the process. And, but to accompany people, um, and just give them a, a constant reminder that they're loved and worthy of love is, um, is really the duty of the minister. It's not a ministry is not about raising or lowering our own standards, which was a lot of what I heard of the critique in Amoris Laetitia from people mm -hmm. saying, you know, you're asking ministers to lower their standards about yeah. people. Ministry is about constantly and responsibly raising the moral capabilities of the person you're ministering to. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's not necessarily a fast process either. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and that's what I, uh, yeah. So at my parish, we were doing this, um, 
the process was called like next gen disciple makers. Um, and so someone, some think tank guy came in and they asked a bunch of young adults to participate. And so it was like broken up into subcommittees and one of them was obstacles. And so they looked into the church's relationship with LGBT Catholics and the LGBT community. And that group was completely split mm. on how to approach it. That on one side, you had those who wanted to take a slow process. Let's welcome them in. Let's right. make them feel at home. Mm. And the other side of that group was, we need to tell them what the hardcore doctrine is mm. the minute they walk in. Mm. And like even someone subversively like, without putting their name on it, put something in someone's box at the parish. That was like, um, Cardinal such and such says homosexuals need to do X, Y, and Z before they can return to communion. And it's like, mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. <laughs> so example of maybe how not to be pastoral. <laughs> so that, that just kind of comes to mind as one of those examples where like you can, you're not really, dumbing down the standards right. you're just being extremely deliberate about how you journey with this person and lead them to christ right right and i think um a good example is to think about like marathon training right mm -hmm. so if marathon is the idea of the good it doesn't mean that you because you roll out of bed one morning and decide to run a marathon that a quarter mile is therefore bad Right. So that, that might be where you need to start, right, is with this quarter mile runs and then you work yourself up to three mile runs and six mile runs. Um, and and but the whole time, if, if you're doing this on your own, it's far more difficult. Yeah. So like running is always done better in a group. Mm -hmm. um, and the disciples kind of reflected this uh, just to look at Amoris Letizia real fast. Um, in chapter 38, it says, many people feel that the church's message on marriage and the family does not clearly reflect the preaching and attitude of Jesus, who set forth a demanding ideal, yet never failed to show compassion and closeness to the frailty of individuals like the Samaritan woman or the woman caught in adultery. And, and so therefore, we as pastoral ministers need to realize that we're not better than Jesus, right? <laughs> <laughs> that he serves as our model and that, you know, so slipping anonymous notes is not ministry, right? Yeah. It's just, I don't, I don't even know what to call that. And, <laughs> um, but again, it, and it tells us in chapter or in paragraph 79, and therefore, while clearly stating the church's teaching, pastors are to avoid judgments that do not take into account the complexity of various situations and, and they are to be attentive by necessity to how people experience and endure distress because of their condition. Um, so Amoris Letizia is pretty clear that um, belonging and acceptance and love should be what animate our ministry. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I don't I kind of came up with this little uh, phrase um, that like the doctrine of the church is black and white, mm -hmm. but its application is gray. Mm -hmm. That it's like you have these standards, right. but like I don't think anybody's meeting them if we're being honest sure. with ourselves. Right. And, right. Uh, and Tom, St. Thomas Aquinas was really clear about that as well that um, past or church teachings. Um, ideas of the good in the abstract are so clear and mm -hmm. so um, 
yeah, crystal clear. And then once we start applying these very clear ideas to very murky particular situations yeah. with all of the circumstantial factors that are involved, then um, the right and the wrong and the good and the bad can become less obvious to us. And so acknowledging that um, is important. And this is, again, St. Thomas Aquinas. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about centuries of tradition within the church. Yeah, and he, um, I feel, didn't he, even his theology was kind of like had pushback to it, sure, right? right? When mm -hmm. like, it's not until a theologian is dead that they, their <laughs> stuff gets accepted. Right. <laughs> um, so um, maybe we can keep on exploring this, the ideas of discernment, accompaniment, and formation of conscience and um, dive into the uproar that this document caused with a footnote. Sure. <laughs> um, Do you want to read it for your listeners? Um, I think you have the like body of the paragraph, oh, right? Okay. Yes. And so in the, we're talking about the eighth chapter, correct? Yeah. Chapter eight. And I guess it's paragraph 305. Uh -huh. So yes, um, he has a footnote, which caused a lot of, um, dialogue <laughs> or monologue, um, <laughs> but that, and his footnote says in certain cases, oh, so I should read the body of the text mm -hmm. first. Um, so he notes, because of forms of conditioning and mitigated factors, it is possible that in an objective situation of sin, which may not be subjectively culpable or fully such, a person can be living in God's grace and can love and can also grow in the life of grace and charity while receiving the church's help to this end. And then his footnote that it points to, um, referring to the sort of church the help could offer, um, writes, in certain cases, this can include the help of the sacraments. Hence, I want to remind priests that the confessional must not be a torture chamber, but rather an encounter with the Lord's mercy. I would also point out that the Eucharist is not a prize for the perfect, but a powerful medicine and nourishment for the weak. So reciting two sacraments specifically within mm -hmm. that text. Yeah, and even later in that same paragraph, 305, he says, a small step in the midst of great human limitations can be more pleasing to God than a life which appears outwardly in order. Um, and he's quoting himself from <laughs> Evangelii Gaudium. Um, so how, what do you feel like Francis is trying to get at when he's, um, and I think obviously he's getting at this kind of sense of discernment and accompaniment that mm -hmm. um, nobody's perfect. And um, you've taught the moral theology course here. Sure, <laughs> so maybe we can talk a little bit about culpability and the church's like kind of since Vatican II outlook on morality as mm -hmm. maybe more of a spectrum than like in than black and white. Things. Sure. Right. So, um, both Bonaventure, a Franciscan theologian who is a contemporary of, of Aquinas, roughly, um, and St. Thomas Aquinas both said that we have to have a three font moral principle first, whenever we're assessing a moral act. So there's the object of the act, which we would consider, um, to be, you know, what is the, um, what do we call this act that's happening? So if we see someone 
telling an untruth, you know, do we, is this, a, we have to determine then it was a lie, which is a deliberate <laughs> te- attempt to deceive, or was the person uninformed, you know, but so a person speaking an untruth that kind of refers to the object. Uh-huh. And then we have the circumstances in which this took place. That's the, the second part of the font. And then the third font is the actor's intention. So what did they, so we have object, circumstance, and intention that we need to assess together whenever we're assessing the morality of an act. Mm -hmm. Um, So bringing all of this together, we suddenly have instead of, um, so before Vatican II, to go back to that little marker that you had, um, Catholics tended to think of sin as something that occurred on this list, right? So (laughs) like, as long as I stay off this list, and especially if I stay off this mortal sins list, Mm -hmm. then I'm fine. So we really had kind of a minimalist morality going on. We just said, okay, don't sin. It wasn't about go be holy. It was about don't sin. So after Vatican II, um, when we have a theology of the laity, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. suddenly we have a a joy and purpose in the world that serves the mission of the church. And now moral moral life is more complex. It's not about don't sin. It is about don't sin, but Mm -hmm. it goes beyond that. It goes to how do we become holier people? How are we better formed disciples? Um, and then when we take the, and then when we're ministering or when we're assessing our own moral acts, it's suddenly not about what's on this list, um, because this list is actually complicated. Mm-hmm. This list has to take into account not just what is readily apparent from the outside, but what is the actor's intention and what are the circumstances that gave rise to this. Again, this was always a, church, a tool of the church since the 1200s, but it was something that was kind of minimalized because. Um, Perhaps the church thinking at, before Vatican II that the laity weren't capable of these complex moral mm-hmm. choices. And so to have a list just made things easier. Yeah, yeah and that's um, yeah. perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe even, so a lot of the kind of fist shaking about this footnote is right. someone who's divorced. Mm-hmm. Uh, or legally divorced, mm-hmm. um, civilly remarried, sure. doesn't have an annulment, and wants to receive the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And but because of this second marriage, and it's maybe not even so much the second marriage; it's the this kind of view that it's adultery over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that person shouldn't be allowed to receive the Eucharist. And even before we maybe examine kind of what the past half century has looked like in kind of the complexities of family life and divorce. um, I mean, I would just like to say, I don't think like picking apart this one thing as these people shouldn't be coming to receive the Eucharist that, I, where am I going? (laughs) That the things that are happening in people's life that others might be scrupulous about that X, Y, and Z, you shouldn't receive the Eucharist. I think everybody would be falling into that category. And Francis appropriately says that it's a medicine for the weak. Mm -hmm. Um, And that... I mean, it's said in the Eucharistic prayers for the forgiveness of sins. Right, right. <laughs> um, and I mean, we can, without getting too like bogged down with all the technicalities of like the doctrines around the Eucharist and kind of 
state of grace and whatnot, all sure. that jargon. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think we can be a little too um, kind of offended too easily when it comes to the Eucharist mm-hmm. and to think that it's, this is the, this is God. Mm-hmm. This is like another f- form of the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And I don't, God protects us. We don't mm-hmm. protect God. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, I'll bounce it back to yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So part of what could Amor Saltizia could contribute to this conversation is this idea of the internal forum that's discussed in the 300th paragraph of the document. And in this, and it's kind of in the middle of the paragraph, uh, what we are speaking of is a process of accompaniment and discernment, which guides the faithful to an awareness of their situation before God. Conversation with the priest in the internal forum contributes to the formation of a correct judgment on what hinders the possibility of a fuller participation in the life of the church and on what steps, uh, and on what steps can foster it and make it grow. And so basically... One thing that this, that Amoris Letizia does is helps, again, create best practices for people. It um, speaks to those who have removed themselves from the sacraments through shame, um, through um, just being instructed or simply just being told that this was, this is not appropriate for them to do. And it opens up the possibility of them through, um, through really discerning what circumstances created this, um, the situation that they're in. Um, maybe they married at a young age because they were an abusive family and they just wanted out. Right. Mm. And so to think of these situations, um, in terms of, um, how they open up new possibilities for people who have, are no longer participating in the sacramental life of the church. Um, and again, this, this just kind of really helps people, helps the church to be a field hospital, Mm -hmm. which is what language that Pope Francis uses a lot, that the church needs to go out to the suffering and to minister there. And we see these, the same example in Jesus's ministry as well. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe we can dive a little bit more into like, what is family life? How's it kind of evolved or like the impact of divorce or people's Mm -hmm. perception of divorce over the past half century right? and kind of the, I feel like maybe a little bit unprecedented nature of that, sure. that the church is facing and how do we like really tackle that and kind of acknowledge that nuance. Right. Right. So like I was saying earlier, now we have these higher expectations of marriage and mm-hmm. um, which means not only that we're not getting married, as in the same rates that we were previously, but we're also more quick to get a divorce because these, uh, which divorce rates have been declining in the last decade, mm-hmm. I should note as well. Um, but we start to feel that this, um, that this marriage isn't what it was supposed to be. And therefore there's something wrong with this person when really, um, <laughs> if marriage is entered to in a properly formed way, um, you have a much better chance of, of realizing that when you hit those bumps, the birth of a first child is a very common bump. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So, I mean, that's a total reorganization of marriage. And we see a lot of people who get divorced after the birth of a first child because they think there's something wrong with themselves or their spouse, mm. when really it's just the nature of having that child. And if we can be more aware of the sociology 
um, that contributes to why people get divorces? Why, um, what are the kind of the markers even before entering a marriage that it's not better? Mm -hmm. If ministers were more aware of these, we could better accompany those who are seeking marriage or seeking divorce. Um, but, and then as far as those who are, are divorced, we tend to talk about them as the divorced, you know, mm -hmm. as this category of people when really their circumstances are so vastly different. Yeah. There are some people who, you know, their spouse just left them and yep. they have no way they haven't even legally divorced because of there's, you know, there's no person to sign papers and um, versus um, someone who's very self-centered and has been going through spouses, you know, because mm -hmm. they don't take the sacrament seriously or yeah. they don't take marriage as an institution very seriously. And so we have a huge spectrum of individuals who are going through divorce and Amoris Laetitia is all about taking these populations and breaking them down into people mm -hmm. and providing um, pastoral insight as to how to make, make this person human, how to make yourself human as a minister, how um, the Catholics in the pews can become more human towards those who are less than perfect. Yeah. And I'm putting that in quote, <laughs> finger quotes, and yeah. um, so how do we, understanding the reality that everyone struggles with um, from small to large crises, um, how do we bring good news to that mm -hmm. situation? And how, I think Amoris Letizia also lifts up in other parts, how do we also recognize the beauty and the good news in families that aren't in these quotes, perfect yeah. situations, you know, from single parenthood um, to, you know, um, cohabitation, recognizing that there's beauty and s stability that these relationships um, generate yeah. and, and, you know, spousal holiness as well, or not even spousal, but um, holiness, domestic church within these circumstances. And um, that we, we want to make sure that we see the good and go meet that good that's there. And that's part of accompaniment too. Right? Yeah. And I think Francis even just using cohabitation as an example, Francis like directly talks about that, that yes. it's recognizing, well, these two are committed mm -hmm. there. So like, how are we moving them along right. to matrimony? Mm -hmm. And, um, that was my experience. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, that I was like, what's, and that was like, during my conversion, it was like, oh, okay. And then, but it's like, we're going to get married. We're going to move into this space where we're taking the whole, like moving more and more into holiness, mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Um, maybe, so the last thing we could maybe hit on is kind of this idea of forming conscience. And, um, and we talked about how like the, morality was seen before Vatican II as a list of mm -hmm. don't do these sins mm -hmm. <laughs> to more of this kind of, I don't know, it's like, I just want to say a blob. <laughs> um, and, but also what is the church's kind of participation or lack thereof been of forming people's conscience to where they can think of a marriage as something permanent instead of like having the list and seeing something as more complex. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem like as a church as a whole, we've moved into taking forming consciousness seriously sure. as that we talk about it seriously, but is it actually being done? Right. 
And so I think that was like the missing step between Vatican, the pre-Vatican II understanding of what it meant to be moral, which was to be obedient, right? Mm-hmm. And to, to follow this, to follow, make sure you were checking the right boxes and doing the things you were supposed to do and avoiding the things you were supposed to avoid. And then moving into this, okay, you are a moral agent capable of great holiness. Go do it. So there was that step of formation that was lost in between that needs to happen and still isn't um, doing a great job. Catholics, at least in the United States, I don't have a lot of experience elsewhere, Mm -hmm. but Catholics within the U.S., we tend to do our formation around sacraments. So we do, you know, the baptism, we talk to parents, we check in with them. We do the sacramental prep and we might check in with parents again there, some confirmation, but we are missing huge swaths of people's lives, um, especially as adults are delaying marriage in the US right now. We're going from confirmation and then, you know, marriage could be 10, 15 years further down the road. Um, and young adults always actually drift within the Catholic Church in the United States, always kind of had this drifting mm-hmm. period. But because they got married at 22, 25, they would drift back for that marriage. But now they're drifting far enough away that the tether has time to snap or to be mm-hmm. lost entirely. Um, and so now we don't have this. So we have a huge period of young adult life, which is not being formed. And then we don't get them to come back. Yeah. Um, so yes, the church would do well to rethink formation structurally, mm-hmm. right? To, to move from a sacramental based approach to a whole lifelong approach. Yeah. Pope Francis says in Amoris Laetitia that marriage preparation begins at birth, mm-hmm. right? And so if we think about that, our relationality, our gift of self, and always emphasizing vocation, whether mm-hmm. it's vocation to the priesthood or vocation to religious life or vocation to marriage, that vocational formation being of service to others, giving oneself to others in a true and lasting and permanent way is really what the Christian life is about. Um, then I think that that would be a great first step structurally. But then before we get to that, what can an individual parish do as well? And that's, I think, would be to um, to help people in these one-on-one moments, right? When people come to you with a struggle, to help them learn to discern, to ask mm-hmm. them, rather than telling them what to do, yeah. ask them questions that are going to um, spark in them something that they didn't know was there before, that is going to lead them in a in an inquiry-based sort of way to God, um, in, even within a struggle that they're having. Yeah, and I, I think too often we get this um, when we talk about not only... Um, the things that families face and or irregular situations or people leaving the church Mm -hmm. everyone's very knee-jerk and quick to blame secular society and never turn the mirror back and well what job have we done Mm -hmm. within the walls of the church like um so how do we have a next generation of catholics that is well informed and on fire Mm -hmm. and i think having that being very intentional about how we do that formation lifelong Mm -hmm. can maybe kind of stem the tide of these things these issues that we face today sure right and i think jesus i keep talking about jesus which is great (laughs) (laughs) why would we talk about jesus (laughs) but i mean you see his very relational based way he did ministry Mm -hmm. he didn't um, he never, 
and I don't want to say never, (laughs) there's probably an exception in there, but he did not often start with a, this is what you should do. It was not a matter of catechizing people so much as sharing experiences with them. Mm -hmm. And then through an experience, a person has an aha moment and then see, and then, so then rather than being spoon fed the right answer, they're discovering the right answer. And then they own it themselves rather than being able to cite um, the person who taught it to them. And that's exactly like I interviewed someone who she was baptized Catholic mm-hmm. um, and her parents stopped taking her. She was terrified of God because of Noah's Ark. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's the exact answer she gave. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me the answer. Mm-hmm. Lead me to it. Mm-hmm. Kind of attitude of right. ask me questions that get me there mm-hmm. where it's coming from within me and not right. from you. Yeah. Um, uh, I think this has been fun. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> um, so you have a book coming out, right? I do, yes. <laughs> if you want to know. So yeah. as you know, I, we, I talked a lot about the, the Papal Synod, joy uh-huh. of the, emerged, the Joy of Love Emerged From, and then the San Diego Synod. There's another synod coming out yeah. in October on young adults and vocational discernment. So it's a great edited collection. There's 60 contributors to it. Um, Justin, you're one of them. <laughs> I'm talking about what it's like to be a parenting Catholic, but it's it's great if you want to know about a whole swath of um, of different populations of Catholics. So you've got parenting Catholics, undergraduates, emerging adults, um, Hispanic Catholics, marginal Catholics, mm-hmm. um, people in the priesthood, people as lay ministers. So there's a whole um, a very wide range of of experiences you'll get to hear from in those. Awesome. What's the book called the book is called young adult american catholics vocational discernment in their own words all right colon (laughs) (laughs) colon (laughs) all right um do you have any last thoughts or no thank you this has been really fun and i hope um the listeners feel free to contact me at maureen day at fst.edu with any questions yeah and uh so again maureen is the professor of pastoral theology at the franciscan school of theology in Oceanside, California, um, and besides her upcoming book on young adult vocational discernment, uh, she also has a handful of articles at America Magazine, uh, which are awesome, <clears throat> like her her family vacation last summer. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, yeah, thank you, Maureen. Yeah, and thank you, Justin. We can do it again soon. Yes, All right. right. All right, thank you for joining us on this bonus edition of Los Nazarenos podcast on Pope Francis's Amoris Laetitia. So remember to rate and review the podcast, share it with your friends, and uh, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and it's at Nazarenos for Life, and you can also check out our website, nazarenosforlife.com. Thanks and peace.